there any dry eyes left, you just ignore us. And all of us, the rest of us, are going to go ahead and wipe in unison, I think. You want to know what's special about that is that that's not just an act. That woman has done just what she represented in that story. That is Snooky Johnson, or Lottie Johnson, as we probably should call her. Isn't it amazing in the body of Christ when we serve the Lord, God makes a great promise when we are teachers of the word, and that is that his word will not return, doesn't say unto us, but unto him, void. It will always come back and accomplish what he intends for it to accomplish. And when you serve Jesus, and when you teach the Word of God, or when you do what Dean Ortner does and travels all over the country presenting biblical truth in a unique way, you're distributing the Word of God, and you have no idea what fruit's coming from that. And Snooky will never know this side of heaven, all the fruit that comes from her ministry. And neither will you as a Sunday school teacher. And neither will you know from your gifts. You'll, you'll never see all the fruit. Ab uh, Hebrews 11 says that Abraham never received all the promises, but it didn't make any difference. He just kept on serving God, even when he didn't see all the fruit from his life or his ministry. I think there's a sermon there. <laughs> we might just ditch Revelation 17. <laughs> All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 17. This is Pastor's Pals Month, and we are trying to give an outline to them. And uh, in a few weeks, probably, what I want to do, I want to have an opportunity to go into more depth into chapters 16 and 17, and I'm going to do some, some in-depth Bible teaching on a couple of these themes, and I'll announce that to you. For instance, there's a great comparison between the woman who is the harlot, the prostitute in chapter 17, with the woman of chapter 13 who is spiritual Israel. And I, I want to show you some of those things. And I don't have time on Sunday mornings to do that, but we're going to do it on a couple of Wednesday, Wednesday nights. Excuse me. But let's turn to Revelation 17. And look at verse 17. There's one idea here that I want to choose. God has put it into their hearts, the hearts of the ten kingdoms or the ten rulers of the ten entities who will rule for an hour just briefly at the end of the tribulation period. This is in the future. God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, Revelation 17 brings us to the conclusion of things. It is the judgment of God on ecclesiasticism, the judgment of God upon a false church. God will then judge commercialism, the commercial world at the end of the tribulation. He will judge the political and the governmental world. He will judge finally the satanic trinity of Satan and the Antichrist and the beast. But he begins his end judgment. And remember that these 
trumpets, the seals and the trumpets and bowls are, are not necessarily sequential. They're expressions of God's judgment, how he'll bring the world to a conclusion at the end of that tribulation period. But God will judge, primarily here in this chapter, the false apostate religion of the world which has so deceived every world empire and in fact deceives us today. There is an apostate false church and we need to know the difference. Now, um, uh, let me see. Uh, uh, David, which one of your boy? What's your boy's name in the red sweater? David. That's David Jr. David Jr., come on up here just a minute. Would you, a second, I love that red sweater. I like that. Now, I want to illustrate something with you. Am I embarrassing you? Huh? Okay. Good. Now, isn't that a nice pen? I want you to look at that pen. Feel that. Feel how heavy it is. Isn't that a nice pen? Yes, sir. It's lacquered. It really writes nice. You can get to it by just twisting it that way. And uh, that looks like an expensive pen, doesn't it? Does yes, it sir. feel like an expensive pen? Yes, sir. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I was hoping you would think so. Um, feel that pen right there. Does that feel like an expensive pen? Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. Do you know that pen costs $300 and this one costs 6 Isn't that something? Did you, now that, I didn't buy it, it was a gift, but the, <laughs> does it feel that? That, that cost, can, can you believe a pen would cost $300? That's a Mont Blanc, Blanc fountain pen. See how I can tell? See that white thing on the top, see it all choir? That, you know what that means, don't you? You know what that means. That's a Mont Blanc. Okay, and this is a $6 promotional pen, but it feels expensive, doesn't it? It looks expensive, doesn't it? Doesn't it look nice? It's shiny. It writes. Did you get fooled by those pens? Kind of. Kind of. Okay. Well, I appreciate your helping me illustrate how you can get kind of fooled by something that looks good. And that's what Revelation 17 is really all about. Now, I want you to walk with me down through the chapter, and then I'm going to show you one serious, very significant truth. In verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. This is a bad woman. And the wicked woman represents all false all false religions and all false worship of the world. The harlot is about to be judged, but she represents false religion 4,000 years ago. She represents false religion 2,000 years ago. She represents the false church today all over the world. There are many people meeting in buildings that look nice. They have steeples. But there's no power of God. There is no word of God. The spirit of God is not there. There is no gospel. People are not being converted. We're told in those churches to do better. Try to do better. It is a religion of man and not the religion of God. 
And the Bible says that the king, in verse 2, the kings of the earth committed fornication. Their relationship to this wicked woman was like a, a man who committed immorality. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. They were so seduced by this woman that the inhabitants of the earth have become fooled and happily fooled. Lenin said that religion is the opiate of the people. Opiate simply makes one senseless. It makes one not feel things. I'm not sure Lenin was all wrong. False religion may be the opiate of the people, but Jesus Christ changes life and brings joy. And that is why the figure throughout the New Testament always talks about when you're a Christian, wake up, Christians, don't be asleep. Don't be drunk, be filled with the Spirit. Be alive, walk in the day, don't walk in the night. See the difference? False religion may be the opiate of the people to deceive them into thinking that they're worshiping something that is real that is not. And in every age there are false churches. And generally speaking, in the body of Christ today, there is, there is wheat and there are tares. And there is a false church that has the form but denies the power of God. And so verse 3 says that he carried me, the angel, carried John away in the spirit into where? Note this, into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Here is this woman riding the beast. The engine of all false religion is the devil. It is not man reaching out to God. Idolatry is not the result of man seeking a God who is playing hide and seek. Paul makes that clear in Romans 1. Idolatry is the result of men's rejection of God. And when you reject the truth, you have nowhere to go but to make your own gods. She's riding on a scarlet beast. Notice the beast had it, well, in verse 3, was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads, seven representing the number of perfection, and ten horns. And we'll see that that's identified with the ten toes of Daniel's, uh, Daniel's vision, which represent those forces coming out of the Roman Empire uh, of ten. And, and, and the speculation is that there will be ten nations involved in this, and we'll come back to it at the end of the chapter. And the woman was wearing, verse 4, purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. In her hand, she had a golden cup full of abominations. A golden cup that she was ready to pour out of wickedness in gold, always making evil look as beautiful and as attractive as possible. And the filthy, the, uh, she was going to pour out her filthy fornications or filthy works. 
Notice verse 5. On her forehead a name was written. Her name was Mystery, Babylon the Great. Oh my, there is a 35-minute sermon by itself. Mystery, Babylon the Great. One of these Wednesday nights, I want to bring you a message on the mystery of God and the mystery of the kingdom and the mystery of Babylon. You need to see the two compared. But the mystery of Babylon the Great is that she is the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth and all false worship and all false religion come from this source. We'll look at verse 6 says, I saw the woman... And she, not only did she intoxicate the world by deceiving them, but she too was thinking she was something important. False church, a false ecclesiasticism, a false world religion, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You know, there's been a form of religion that has always persecuted the true people of God in every age. The true people of God were persecuted in England because they wanted to translate the Word of God. They were persecuted by Rome because they wanted to put the, the Word of God in, in the language of the people and not the language of Latin, which was the language of the intellectuals. And you can go right on back to Rome, Medo-Persia, Syria. Every world, great world kingdom has both duplicated and persecuted the true worship of the living God. That is why, be very careful. You can't say, well, as long as they go to church somewhere, it's all right. Oh, no, because some churches are false churches and they deceive people. And the people get drunk because they're satisfied. They're anesthetized spiritually. And they think they're satisfied with something false. And the church gets anesthetized. It gets drunk with its own greatness and wonder. And so you go on in the chapter. Verse 7, the angel said, why did you marvel? Because John had said in verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled with a great marvel. I was amazed with a great amazement. You know why he was amazed? He was amazed at the power of the church that deceives so many people. He said, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not. He was in power and then was was chained and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and ultimately go to, per, uh, to perdition, verse 8. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, all whose names are not written in the book of life, the unsaved, from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now verse 9, pay special attention. This is not to be translated normally. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Remember, we looked at Isaiah. Mountains represent governmental authority. Now, some people believe this means the seven hills of Rome. That may be, but even more important than that is that seven represents the number of completion or fullness, and she captures all the, the fullness of governmental authority, carries her along, or gives her a ride, or is the engine for her energy. Seven mountains on which the woman sits. 
this false religion. There are also seven kings, verse 10. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. I believe that relates to world religions, world, I mean world empires. And the beast that was and is not is the eighth. The beast driven by Satan, which has energized all of the seven. Now when the seven are done, the eighth takes his place. And God destroys that one in the battle of Armageddon. And verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with a beast. At the very end, those ten kingdoms coming out of the Roman Empire from Daniel's vision and from this vision, John's vision, will have a very brief period of power and will come against the people of God. These, verse 14, will make war with the Lamb. That's the battle of Armageddon. And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Then He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The woman on the waters represents her domination over the people of the world. And the ten horns, which are the ten kingdoms, who will receive power for just a brief period at the end of the tribulation. Now watch what they do. This is, this is very intriguing. Verse 16. They turn on the harlot. They turn on the false world religion. They make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh or destroy her and burn her with fire. And why do those ten kingdoms at the end of the tribulation do that? For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, I just want to focus on that for a moment. The idea that God uses bad things or bad people. Now first, let me uh, do the best I can in a mixed Sunday morning audience to describe a harlot. I was going to send all the children home to ask you, Dad, but I decided I'm going to tackle it myself. All right? A little risky. Y'all pray for me while I dive in here. Okay. A harlot, boys and girls, <laughs> and men and women, is somebody who is paid to act like a wife when she's not a man's wife. How's that? For instance, a, a, a salesman who isn't living for Jesus and is not faithful to his wife, and he goes off on a convention, and he, he may hire a, a girl to go live with him for three days and stay in the hotel with him for three days and act like his wife, that is a harlot. That is a prostitute. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. You got it? You got the picture, David? Okay. Now, you know the difference between a, a real wife, your daddy's real wife, and a prostitute, don't you? You know the difference. Okay. Now, there are four things you need to remember about a prostitute. The first is that she takes the place of a genuine wife. Most prostitutes are women. Now, that's not a, a sexual gender bias statement. 
male prostitutes usually do something worse than that. They serve males in a homosexual relationship. I don't know that I've ever heard of a prostitution ring of men for women being busted. Have you? Has anybody in the choir ever heard of that? You haven't? I haven't. I've lived mm -mm, years and I haven't heard of that. Secondly, a prostitute or a harlot gives affection, but it's not real. She doesn't really love the man because as soon as the money runs out, guess what happens to the affection? The affection is gone. Thirdly, a harlot by her very nature has to build herself up into, in order to attract men. Her focus is all on herself and making herself look attractive. Now, if you ever drive down 14th Street, don't ask me how I know that. A policeman told me one time. If you ever drive down 14th Street and you see a girl with perfume emanating from her and she's got skirts on that high, guess what? She might be. Okay? Fourth, she always runs the risk of rejection if she doesn't please the man who hired her. A true wife is, is, she knows that even if she doesn't always please her husband, he will still love her and keep her. Amen, men? And all the men said? And all the men said? Amen. One more time. Now, let me say that again. A real wife and husband know that even if the man, if, if, the man, if she doesn't always please the man, the man will still love her. And all the men said? Amen. Amen. Now you're cooking with Crisco. Boy, ladies, what's going on with these men? We need to send them to, we need nine promises for a promise keeper here if we keep this up. A real wife doesn't have to make herself always attractive. She is willing to pour herself into the life of her husband. And that's a rich bond. And she gives real affection, not paid affection. And she is the real thing. And that's what helps us identify the church. The church is characterized by a genuine mark of the Holy Spirit as much as that Mont Blanc is characterized by that white dot at the end. And the real church always loves the world and holds its candle out to the world and touches the lives of persons who are in need without regard to what it will get back. And the real church doesn't have to, to always call attention to itself. The purpose of the body of Christ is not to make the world think that Calvary Baptist Church is a beautiful, great, attractive church. What is our task? The true church always points men to Jesus, the groom. The Holy Spirit's task in us is to glorify Christ, and that's how the difference is characterized between the harlot, the false church, and false religion, and the true church. And so we have this false religion that throughout the ages has grown and dominated and impacted every generation that has ever lived. 
Now take your Bibles. I, I want you to see the biblical basis for this and go back to Genesis chapter 10. I'm going to give you a name that I want every boy and girl to remember, and I don't know whether you got this in Sunday school, and I don't know whether it's been a long time since I've even preached on Nimrod. Shame on me. But I don't want you to miss it today. I want you to understand why there is a false religion who is the mother of all deception and the mother of all filthy abominations in the name of religion, the mother of all martyrdom in the name of Christ, the mother of all paganism, the mother of all idolatry. There is a spirit loose in this world, and here's where it started in Genesis chapter 10. Now look at verse, verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That doesn't do the Hebrew justice. I want to come back to that phrase. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was, what's the first word, class? Babel. Do you know where Babylon came from? It came from Babel. The beginning of his kingdom. And notice what's the first one? Babel. Nimrod fostered all false religions. Satan finally found somebody in whom he could begin incarnating himself to deceive the world. And every great world empire has been impacted by the paganism and the idolatry and the nature worship that has emanated out of Nimrod. It all started right here. And so the Bible gives us the picture. Now, the name Nimrod comes from the Hebrew Marad, which means to rebel. Isn't that interesting? Nimrod's name is to rebel. And the way it's set in the Hebrew, you can say, we will rebel, or come let us rebel. So he is not just a rebel. He is a rebel who wants to lead others in his rebellion and bring others with him. And when it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, it, the, that, that's very open to, to translation. Probably in the context, it is better translated, Nimrod was a mighty hunter who was in defiance of the Lord, who was in rebellion before God in what he did. And chapter 11 Verse 1, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they learned how to make bricks. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen or asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And who started this? Nimrod. Why? Because he founded Babel. Here it is, right here. And verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now they built a tower and they built it so high. And at the top, if you read that Hebrew as it should be read, at the top was a place, uh, and, and you'd have to see this. Look at verse 4. Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top the heavens is, is actually the way the Hebrew reads. Whose top the heavens and it is generally believed that high atop that first tower was built a shrine to worship the sun and the moon. And all sun and moon worship comes from that. Let me read from you, for you from Josephus. 
Quote, Nimrod persuaded mankind not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to think that his own excellency was the source of it. And he soon changed things into a tyranny, thinking that there was no other way to wean men from the fear of God than by making them rely on his own power. There is the source of all tyranny and all dictatorships in the world. Came out of Nimrod. The Targum of Jonathan, which is another ancient Jewish uh, uh, book which shows what the Jews believed. From the, from the foundation of the world, none was ever found like Nimrod, powerful in hunting and in rebellions against the Lord. And the Jerusalem Targum, another ancient Jewish manuscript says, he was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. For he was a hunter of the sons of men, and he said to them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord, and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore it is said, As Nimrod is the strong one, strong in hunting, and in wickedness before the Lord. Folks, Babylon was the site of the first temple to the sun, the beginning of all false worship, the beginning of all false religion, the beginning of, a, of a, in an organized way, of a substitute for the worship God. And that is why the Lord came down in verse 5 to see the tower. And he said, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. They propose to do now. Nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. I'm going to let their, their brilliance be their own judgment. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. And God scattered them, verse 8, from all over the face of all the earth, and they ceased before the city. And that explains why, when you read history, young people, and they tell you, well... Over here is Ashtaroth, and over here is Intasmar, and over here is Venus. And that is why in every great culture and in every great religion, there was a substitute for Christ and a substitute for the church, the bride. And there was a substitute for God for worship. And there was always, always those three things. Nature worship and nature sacrifices. Idol, pagan worship, and pagan sacrifices. And thirdly, always blasphemy against God. God's not the way, do it our way. Man's way versus God's way. And that's the source. It all came from Nimrod. From Babylon to Assyria. From Assyria to the Phoenician Empire. From Phoenicia to Pergamos. From Pergamos to Rome. From Rome to this very day. Now, this is what happened when Israel began to stray from the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy 4:19. And in Deuteronomy 4:19, well, begin reading in verse 15. God said, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. You didn't see any form, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female or the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, or the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. Take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. For the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be his people, his inheritance, as you are. This day, God warned them, don't do it. 
And then you read the Kings and the Chronicles and you see where they built temples and shrines on every hill. They made graven images of God. They made images of, of beasts. They made images and worshiped those beasts. And that's why. You can read it in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 17, God explains it all. This is why I dispersed Israel. Israel is lost as a nation. Only Judah remained because of the sins of false religion. And it comes in every age. Today, I think it is in some of the great, and I'm not knocking formality, but I think there are some great, great cathedrals that are empty tombs inside. They're just historical buildings. There's no power. There's no proclamation of the Word. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no conviction of sin. Christ is not honored. Man does what he wants to do. He puts tradition in the place of God and even starts to incorporate icons and images to be worshipped in the place of the Lord. And that is why God says, ultimately, I'm going to bring judgment on all false religion and all false church. And when you understand the mystery of the kingdom in Matthew, when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he says, till the end of the age, the wheat will grow with the tares. But one of these days, you mind me, God will separate the wheat from the tares and you know the true church from the false church. I want to close by just showing you the meaning of this, this verse in Revelation 17, 17. God put it in the hearts at the end of time. God put it in the hearts of those ten kings who have uh, power from the beast for only an hour, for a brief time. At the end of the tribulation, God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind. Sometimes God uses evil men and evil things to accomplish his will and his purpose. And there are four times, and then I'm, I'm done. First, there's an indirect method. An indirect method, when God controls events in time, and that's illustrated by Joseph, when his brothers put him in the pit in Genesis, and God raised him out, so had Ishmaelite traders take him to Egypt, and he wound up vice president and secretary of agriculture, God orchestrated events in time and used the, the, the acts of evil brothers in order to accomplish his will. And Joseph wound up in Egypt. You remember that story? And hoarded all the grain so that when there was famine in Israel, they could come down and get it from their brother. God used evil intentions and motives of brothers in order to bring his good. And you know, that's why when somebody does you wrong, just rejoice in Joseph. It's called the Joseph Principle. They meant it to you for evil, but God will turn it to good. That's the indirect method. Then there is the direct method where God uses evil. For instance, God took the Babylonian kingdom and used it to bring judgment on the southern kingdom. He used Cyrus, and throughout history, God has used pagan people in order to accomplish his will. Directly uses individual men. Thirdly, there is what I call the chaos method. <laughs> and the chaos method is when God just distorts the enemy. He routes the enemy or divides the enemy. That's illustrated by 2 Chronicles 20 when Jehoshaphat was going down to En Gedi. And the Ammonites and the Seerites and the Moabites were all gathered against him. 
And when they heard the people march down there rejoicing and singing, they all started arguing. And when they started arguing about whether Israel had another army helping them or not, whether they should be afraid, they turned on each other and killed each other. So by the time Jehoshaphat and the children of Judah got down there, there was no enemy left. I love to see that. I, I get a big kick out of that when God does that. I like that method. I like the chaos method. He turns the enemy into chaos. And the fourth method is the community method. When he does just the opposite, he brings all your enemies together or all of his enemies together to agree to one thing so that he can use them. And that's what he does here. God put it into the hearts of the ten kings, and at the end of time, they had enough with organized religion. They had enough with false religion. They had enough with the counterfeit. And God puts it in their hearts to agree on this one thing. We've had enough of a fake church. And at the end of time, he uses those kingdoms to destroy that false religion. Well, I don't know about you, <laughs> But I read this chapter and I come down greatly encouraged. I don't care what the world does to me. God's got four ways he can take evil and use it for my good because he's in charge. And today, right now, I want to keep looking at my life and make sure that I'm not in the counterfeit of the false. I'm in the real. I'm in the true. I want to make sure that my calling and election is sure I'm going, to be a, I'm going to be an endurer to the very end and demonstrate to the whole world that we who know Jesus and believe in Jesus, we never get tired of worshiping Him, do we? We never get tired of doing what's right. And we never get tired of teaching Sunday school. And we never grow weary of serving Him. And we never grow weary of reproducing. And we never grow weary of letting our candle shine. And we never grow weary of winning souls. And we never grow weary of loving the world. Because the true church has true affection for her bride. Amen and amen. Let's stand. Father, Speak to us this morning by your Spirit. Encourage us and challenge us in Jesus' name. Amen.